Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, in our last program, we said it could be our last of the series, The Global Flood Account in Genesis. Well, it wasn't, <laughs> because you are going to finish the series with this program. At least that's the plan, right? Yes, Scott, that's the plan. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea we'd spend this much time on the flood back when I began this series. Me neither. I started it by discussing different global flood accounts from peoples and cultures from around the world. And as a resource, I used an excellent book by Charles Martin titled Flood Legends, Global Clues of a Common Event. And then we ended up interviewing Mr. Martin. Yeah. Well, after that, we began a detailed study of the Hebrew global flood account in Genesis. And now here we are, 21 programs later, finishing up this program series, The Global Flood Account of Genesis. 21 programs? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not like there's just a small amount of information to discuss in the Genesis account. It starts in Genesis 6 and concludes in Genesis 9. Mm -hmm. Now, in the last program, you finished chapter 8, so you'll be covering what chapter 9 records about the flood today? That's right, Scott. Although chapter 9 doesn't talk as much about the flood as it does some changes God made in the world following the flood, and then about a promise he makes to the creatures living on the earth. Ah, I think you're referring to the Rainbow Covenant. Yes, the Rainbow Covenant. But we'll start by reading the promise the Lord makes at the end of chapter 8. So read Genesis 8, 22, Scott. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And the point I would make about that interesting promise God makes is, the changes in the seasons and in temperatures on the earth were going to be very different from what Noah and the creatures that survived the flood were familiar with before the flood. The creation flood models all have in common the proposal that the earth did not have polar ice caps nor highly energetic storms before the flood. But after the flood, given the changes in the forces on earth that determined the weather, precipitation in the form of water and snow would now be the norm. Temperatures would occur over a much broader range than before, and a great ice age would begin, forming the polar ice caps and glaciers that would extend down from the north and up from the south. And as the Lord says, the cycle of seasons and temperature change would not cease as long as the earth remained. Now, we could get into a long discussion of how that relates to global warming, now called climate change, <laughs> but that's not what I want to do in our program today. I'm simply going to say that whatever your opinion about climate change may be, I submit the Bible would claim God is in control of the weather, and I hold to that view. Amen. So, now let's read Genesis 9, verses 1 through 3, which records what God says now that Noah and every creature had gotten off the ark. Okay, Genesis 9-1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. 
So, what we learn in this passage is, up to this point in human history, it was not God's intention that humans eat meat. Remember, in Genesis 1.29, God said to Adam, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit-yielding seed. It shall be food for you. But now, God is allowing people to eat anything that is alive, plants and animals. And notice there's no restriction. In other words, God doesn't say you can eat anything but pork or shellfish, as he does many centuries later when he gives the law to the Israelites. Man can eat anything he finds to eat. Dr. Scripture, why do you think God made that change? Well, I start by pointing out the Bible doesn't tell us why God made the change. So it's my opinion that, in a sense, it was necessary for humans to eat animals as well as plants after the flood, because plants to eat would be in short supply, and especially as the extreme seasonal changes began to set in. There would be no vegetation available in the winters in the northern regions of earth. The Lord tells man to spread out, to fill the earth. Now, as usual, man disobeyed. Thus, eventually, the Tower of Babel judgment happens. But he was supposed to migrate to all parts of the earth, and populations developing in the north or far south would have to have sources of food other than fruits and vegetables. That does make a lot of sense. And so then does the change in animals' interaction with human beings. It would seem that God put the fear of man in the animals for the animals' own protection. I agree, Scott. I think that's exactly what happened. Now, probably at least initially, people use their livestock for food. But eventually, man would start hunting. Just like they saw predatory animals doing. Well, probably. And so God was making it <laughs> a fair, quote-unquote, fight. Well, knowing man, if God had not done that, just about every beast of the earth would have been hunted to extinction. You know, that's sad but true. But you mentioning man may have gotten the idea to hunt from the predatory animals is related to the next three verses of Genesis 9. So let's read Genesis 9, 4 through 6. Verse 4, Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So notice, even though God is allowing man to eat meat now, he prescribes a law that distinguishes man from the animals. An animal, like a tiger or an eagle, eats its prey alive with the blood still in it. But God commands man to kill an animal and drain the blood. In other words, prepare it as food. Now, the first thing that comes to mind is it's healthier that way, but I think it also is for the purpose of showing respect for life and making the distinction between man and animals. Man is not an animal. He is the image bearer, and what the Lord then establishes is man is not to kill man like animals kill one another, and if a person does kill another person, in respect for the sanctity of human life, the murderer is to be put to death. So this is the establishment, by God, of capital punishment. Yes, it is. 
And notice the reason God gives is not because capital punishment is a deterrent, although to say that the threat of losing one's life if they take another life is not a deterrent is pretty ridiculous. But the reason God gives for capital punishment is related to his image and his image in man. Dr. Scripture, I would think the attributes that relate to God's image would be things like the justice of God and the value of life. I agree. And we could discuss this issue for the rest of our program today. Certainly could. But I want to get to the rest of chapter 9 that relates in particular to the flood as we finish our series on the global flood account of Genesis. So let's read now verses 7 through 15. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Okay, that concludes verse 15. And there we have it, the rainbow covenant. It's pretty easy to summarize. God says the rainbow is a sign of a promise he's making. And what is that promise, Scott? That he will never again flood the earth to destroy all flesh. All flesh. And this is a key point we've been making throughout this whole series on the global flood. The entire narrative on the flood has been clear, that God was sending a flood that would cover the whole world. And that flood would destroy the earth and all land animals on it save those that were on the ark. The rainbow was his promise he'd never do it again. Now, just think, if it was just a local flood, how many times has the Lord broken his promise? It'd be too many times to count, you know, even in my lifetime alone. Absolutely. He would have broken his promise just this year when Hurricane Ian flooded large sections of Florida. And it's problems like that, I submit, that I'm afraid many believers do not even think about when they twist the simple, obvious meaning of Scripture to fit some preconceived notion about Earth's history, generally being influenced by evolutionary thinking. You know, it's not surprising that unbelievers and skeptics of the Bible deny there was a global flood. They discount anything written in the Bible that suits them. But a person claiming to believe and who endeavors to follow God's Word should be careful to interpret the word rightly. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Imagine a believer talking with an unbeliever about the flood and suggesting that it was just a local flood. 
And then the unbeliever challenges them on how that means God has broken his rainbow covenant with man, earth, and all the creatures on it innumerable times throughout history. I know if that happened to me, I'd be extremely ashamed. Well, me too. I recommend anyone who claims to believe God's word come to the conviction that, in fact, God judged man and the world in the days of Noah by sending a global flood and then made this promise we read in Genesis 9, 16 and 17. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says. 